The Devil's Foot by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Dramatised by Grant Eustace, with Roy Marsden as Sherlock Holmes and John Moffat as Dr. Watson. It was in the spring of 1897 that Sherlock Holmes's iron constitution showed some symptoms of giving way in the face of constant hard work of a most exacting kind. If he did not lay aside all his cases and surrender himself to complete rest, an absolute breakdown might not be avoided. The state of his health was not a matter in which he himself took the faintest interest, since his mental detachment was absolute. But he was induced at last to give himself a complete change of scene and air. Thus it was that the early spring found us in a small cottage near Poldew Bay, at the further extremity of Cornwall. You have chosen a very singular spot for us, Watson. Sinister, I might say. Oh, now how can you describe this marvellous view over Mount Bay as sinister? The view from on top of the cliffs is one thing, but what of its aspect from seaward? Why, as a seaman, I would appreciate it all the more as a place for rest and protection from a storm. Well, that is when the wind is from the north. From the southwest, it will be a tale of dragging anchors on a lee shore and a last battle among the rocks. On the land side, our surroundings were lonely, rolling moors. They were just as suited to the grim humour of my patient, and he spent much of his time in long walks and solitary meditations. It was during one of these that a way to occupy his time occurred to him. It seems to me, Watson, that the ancient Cornish language has much in common with the Chaldean. Hmm? Well, it could be that it is derived from the Phoenicians, who traded the tin in these parts. Huh. I'll send for some philological books from London. But no sooner was he settling down to develop this thesis than, to my sorrow and his unfeigned delight, we were plunged into a problem more intense and infinitely more mysterious than any of those which had driven us to Cornwall. Mr. Our first intimation that something was wrong came as we were about to Mr. set out on one of our walks. Don't shut the door yet, Watson. It looks as if our morning excursion upon the moors is to be interrupted. We have visitors. Oh, yes, the vicar. And Mr. Tregenis. Oh, Mr. Holmes, the, the most extraordinary and tragic affair has occurred during the night. Oh, we can only regard it as a special providence that you should chance to be here. You'd better come in, gentlemen. Tell us about it. Thank you, Mr. Mr. Roundhay, the vicar, was normally most affable, but this morning was much disturbed. Mortimer Tregenis, who supplemented the clergyman's scant resources by taking rooms in his house was a sad-faced, introspective man, but even his dark eyes were bright, and his hands twitched nervously. Shall I speak, or you? Perhaps if I say a few words first, Mr. Holmes. Mm. Hmm? Uh, you can judge if we should hasten at once to the scene of this mysterious affair. Now, I should point out, Mr. Roundhay, that Mr. Holmes is here to rest. Oh. The fate's here against you, Doctor. Hmm. Well, let them tell us what has happened. Oh, uh, briefly, then, uh, Mr. Treginis spent last evening in the company of his two brothers, Owen and George, and his sister Brenda. Where was this? At their house at Dunnock Water. Uh, yes. Uh, he left them shortly after ten o'clock in excellent health and spirits. Yes. Uh, this morning he walked in that direction before breakfast. Why at such an hour? I have always been an early riser. Uh, yeah, quite. He was overtaken by the carriage of Dr. Richards, who explained that he'd just been sent for on a most urgent call to Tudanic Water. So you naturally went with him? Yes. When they arrived, Mr. Holmes, his two brothers and his sister were seated round the table exactly as he had left them. 
cards still spread in front of them, and the candles burnt down in their sockets. Mm. But the sister lay back stone dead in her chair while the two brothers sat on each side of her. They were laughing, shouting, and singing with their senses trickly out of their minds. Good Lord. And all three of them, dead or alive, retained on their faces an expression of the utmost horror. Was there no one else in the house? Only Mrs. Porter, the old cook and housekeeper, who declared she'd slept deeply and heard no sound during the night. Ah. Has anything been stolen or disarranged? Uh, uh, nothing. Uh, there is the situation in a nutshell, Mr. Holmes, and if you can help us clear it up, you will have done a great work. I will look into the matter. Oh, dear, dear. Now, on the face of it, it would appear a case of a very exceptional nature. Have you been there yourself, Mr. Roundhead? Uh, no. Uh, Mr. de Geris brought back the account to the vicarage, Aye. and I at once hurried over with him to consult you. Well, how far is it to the house where this singular tragedy occurred? Uh, about a mile inland. And then we shall walk over together. Uh, but before we start, I must ask you a few questions, Mr. de Geris. Ask what you like, Mr. Holmes. It's a bad thing to speak of, but I will answer you the truth. Mm. You left your sister and brother playing cards seated at the table? Yes. Who let you out? And Mrs. Porter had gone to bed, so I let myself out. Were the windows of the rooms open or shut when you left? Shut. And this morning? Still shut. And no reason to think that any stranger had been to the house. Uh, yet there they sat, driven clean mad with terror, and Brenda lying dead of fright. I'll never get the sight of that room out of my mind as long as I live. I take it you have no theory yourself, which can in any way account for these remarkable facts. It's devilish, Mr. Holmes, devilish. It is not of this world. I fear that if the matter is beyond humanity, it is certainly beyond me. Yet we must exhaust all natural explanations before we fall back upon such a theory as that. Oh. Holmes let Tregenis recover some of his natural taciturn manner before asking any further questions. He established that Tregenis lived apart from the rest of the family because of some feeling in the past about the division of money when the family tin mine had been sold. But that was all now forgotten and forgiven, and they were the best of friends. So Holmes turned his attention again to the events of the previous night. Your people were in their usual spirit? Never better. No apprehension of coming danger? Nothing of the kind. Does anything stand out in your memory as unusual? There is one thing occurs to me. As we sat at the table, my back was to the window. I saw my brother George look hard once over my shoulder, so I turned round and looked also. It seemed to me for a moment that I saw something moving among the bushes. Man or animal? I couldn't say. Just something. Did your brother see it also? He told me he had the same feeling. Did you not investigate? No. The matter passed as unimportant. You left them then without any premonition of evil? None at all. Then I think perhaps we'd better go to Tridanic Water without further delay. Our walk there was marked by an incident that left the most sombre impression upon my mind. As we made our way along the lane leading to the house, we had to stand aside to let a carriage pass. As it drove by, I caught a glimpse through the closed window of a horribly contorted, grinning face glaring out at us. My brothers, they're being taken to the asylum. We looked with horror after the black carriage lumbering on its way. Then we turned our steps back towards the house. Once there, Holmes walked slowly and thoughtfully outside among the flower pots and along the path before we entered. 
So absorbed was he that he stumbled over a watering pot, upset its contents, and deluged both our feet and the pot. Uh, gentlemen, gentlemen, I am so sorry. Oh, don't worry. Was there anything else you wished to see in the garden, Mr. Holmes? No. Let us go in and talk to the housekeeper. But she had little to tell us. She had fainted when she first entered the room and saw that dreadful company around the table. When she recovered, she had thrown open the window to let the morning air in and run down the lane to find a farm lad to send for the doctor. Once Holmes had finished questioning the housekeeper, we ascended the stairs and viewed the body now laid upon her bed. Miss Brenda Tregenis had been a very beautiful girl, though now verging on middle age, and her face was still handsome, even in death. From there we descended to the sitting room where this strange tragedy had occurred. Holmes paced with light, swift steps about the room, reconstructing the scene in his mind. Is it all as it was when you left? Uh, except that the chairs have been moved back from the table. Yes, it is. Are these the ashes of last night's fire? Uh, yes. Well, why a fire in this small room on a spring evening? It was cold and damp when I arrived, so one was lit. What are you going to do now, Mr. Holmes? Well, with your permission, gentlemen, Dr. Watson and I will take a walk along the cliffs. And I will turn the facts over in my mind. Oh, I... Well, should anything occur to me, I will certainly communicate with you. Now, Watson, let us get a firm grip on what we do know. Well, very little, it seems to me. True. But if we calmly define our position, we may be ready to fit fresh facts into their places when they arise. Hmm. Now, I take it that neither of us is prepared to admit diabolical intrusions into the affairs of men. No, no, most certainly not. Very good. There remain three persons who have been grievously stricken by some conscious or unconscious human agency. But that's firm ground. Now, when did this occur? Well, if the room was as Mortimer Tregenis left it, it must have been shortly after he left. And then the next step is to check the movements of Mortimer Tregenis. Mm. But they seem to be about suspicion. Hmm. You know my methods. So you are conscious of the somewhat clumsy waterpot expedient by which I obtained a clearer impress of his feet than might otherwise have been possible. Hmm. Could you pick out his track on the path from last night? Yes. He appears to have walked swiftly away in the direction of the vicarage. If then he disappeared from the scene, how can we reconstruct the person who so affected the card players? And how was it achieved? Well, uh, you can you can surely eliminate Mrs. Porter. Oh, yes, the housekeeper is harmless. So was it done by someone who crept up to the garden window? Yes, they saw some movement in the garden. But anyone who had the design to alarm these people would be compelled to place his face right against the glass before he could be seen. There is a three-foot flower border outside that window, but no indication of a footmark. Mm -hmm. Nor have we found any possible motive. You perceive our difficulties. It's only too clear then. And yet, with a little more material, we may prove that they are not insurmountable. When we returned to our cottage, we found we had a visitor awaiting us. Neither of us needed to be told who he was. The huge body, the deeply seamed face, the beard, all these were as well known in London as in Africa. And indeed in Cornwall too, where he lived in seclusion. Good day, gentlemen. He could only be Dr. Leon Sterndale, the great lion hunter and explorer. Well, Mr. Holmes, have you made any advance in reconstructing this strange episode? Well... My only claim to being taken into your confidence 
is that during my many residences here, I've come to know the Tregenis family very well. And their fate has naturally been a great shock to me. Well, of course it has. I may tell you that I had got as far as Plymouth on my way to Africa, but came straight back again when the news reached me. Did you lose your ship through? I'll take the next. Oh, oh that is friendship indeed. Uh, was your baggage aboard? Some of it, but the main part of the hotel. I see. But surely this event could not have found its way into the Plymouth Morning Papers? No, sir. I had a telegram. Might I ask from whom? You are very inquisitive, Mr. Holmes. It is my business, yes. Oh, it was Mr. Rande, the vicar, who sent the telegram. Thank you. I may say in answer to your original question that I had not cleared my mind entirely on the subject of this case, but that I had every hope of reaching some conclusion. It would be premature to say more. Perhaps you would tell me if your suspicions point in any particular direction. No, I can hardly answer that. Then I have wasted my time and need not prolong my visit. The famous doctor strode away in considerable ill-humour and within five minutes, Holmes had followed him. By the time he returned, oh. a telegram had arrived for him. Hmm. It's from the Plymouth Hotel, Watson. I learned the name of it from the vicar. Hmm. Dr. Sterndale did indeed stay there, and let his luggage go on while he returned. Well, he's clearly deeply interested. Yes. There is a thread here which we have not yet grasped, and which might lead us through this tangle. Little did we realise how strange and sinister would be the new development that opened up an entirely fresh line of investigation. It came just as we were finishing breakfast the following morning. Oh, oh we are devil-ridden, Mr. Holmes. My poor parish is devil-ridden. Satan himself is loosening no, 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 it. Now, now, come down. Oh. Explain yourself, man. Uh, Mr. Mortimer Tregenis died during the night. Oh. Yes, and with exactly the same symptoms as the rest of his family. Uh, can you fit us both into your dog cart? Uh, uh, yes, yes, I can. Then, Mr. Rante, we are entirely at your disposal. Let's hurry, before things get disarranged. Yes. The vicar's lodger occupied two rooms, a bedroom above a large sitting room. It was in the latter that we found Mortimer Tregenis, sitting beside a lamp, flaring and smoking on the centre table. His face was twisted with the same distortion of terror which had marked the features of his dead sister. He seems to have dressed in a hurry. His bed has been slipped in. So this must have occurred in the early morning. And was the window open when it was found? Uh, no, no, the maid found the room unbearably stuffy, uh, so she opened it. Ah. Holmes was for all the world like a dashing foxhound drawing a cover. Out on the lawn, in through the window, round the room, and up to the bedroom where he opened the window, which seemed to give him fresh cause for excitement. Back in the sitting room, he examined the lamp minutely and scraped off some ashes from it into an envelope. We finally returned to the lawn just as the police put in an appearance. I'm glad to say that my investigation has not been entirely barren. Uh, won't you communicate your findings to the inspector? I cannot remain to discuss it. But I should be exceedingly obliged, Mr. Rountay, if you will give him my compliments and direct his attention to the bedroom window and the sitting room lamp. Yes. Each is suggestive, and together they are almost conclusive. It may be that the police resented the intrusion of an amateur, but we heard nothing from them. In the meantime, Holmes bought a lamp, which was the duplicate of the one which had burned in the room of Mortimer Tregenis. With it, he conducted an experiment which I am not likely ever to forget. 
There is a single common point of resemblance in the reports which have reached us, Watson. And what is that? The atmosphere of the room when first entered. The housekeeper at the Trigenus is fainted. From shock? Yes. But she still found it necessary to open the window when she'd recovered. Well, certainly in the case of Mortimer Trigenis, the room was horribly stuffy. Even though the maid had thrown open the window. Yes. And that maid, I found upon inquiry, was so ill that she had gone to her bed. So, in each case, evidence of a poisonous atmosphere. In each case also, there is combustion going on in the room. Ah, yeah, a fire in one, the lamp in the other. Let us suppose, then, that something was burned in each case, which produced an atmosphere causing strange toxic effects. Yes. In the first instance, the fumes would, to some extent, be carried up the chimney. And the effects would be less, as they were, since only one of the three was killed. Whereas using the lamp in the second case ensured a complete result. And with this train of reasoning, I looked about in Mortimer Trigenis's room to find some remains of this substance that had been burnt. You saw me remove half of the unburnt powder that I found. Yes, why only half? It's not for me, my dear Watson, to stand in the way of the official police force. I leave them all the evidence which I find. <laughs> now, Watson, we will light our lamp. Oh, you propose to test it? Yes, but we will take the precaution to open our window to avoid the premature decease of two deserving members of society. <laughs> but, uh... Surely, if it's as dangerous as that... You can seat yourself near the window in that armchair. Unless, like a sensible man, you determine to have nothing to do with this. <coughs> well, I suppose I should see it out. Good. I thought I knew my Watson. Hmm. My chair I will place opposite yours. Yeah. The door we will leave ajar. Mm -hmm. Now, each watches the other and brings the experiment to an end should the symptoms seem alarming. Holmes then took the envelope containing the powder and poured the powder from it onto the burning lamp. There. Now, Watson, let us sit down and await developments. They were not long in coming. I had hardly settled in my chair before I was conscious of a thick, musky odour, subtle and nauseous. At the very first whiff of it, my brain and my imagination were beyond control. A thick black cloud swirled before my eyes, and within it swirled and swam vague shapes, each the advent of some unspeakable dweller upon the threshold whose very shadow would blast my soul. Freezing horror took possession of me. I tried to scream and was vaguely aware of some hoarse croak which was my own voice but distant and detached from myself. At the same moment I had a glimpse of Holmes's face rigid and drawn with horror the very look which I had seen upon the features of the dead. It was that vision which gave me an instant of sanity and of strength. I dashed from my chair, threw my arms around Holmes, and together we lurched through the door, and an instant afterwards had thrown ourselves down upon the grass, conscious only of the glorious sunshine which was bursting its way through the hellish cloud of terror that had encircled us. Slowly it rose from our souls like the mist from a landscape, until peace 
and reason had returned. My word, Watson, I owe you both my thanks and an apology. It was an unjustifiable experiment even for oneself, and doubly so for a friend. I, I am really very sorry. Oh, you know that it is my, my greatest joy and privilege to help you. Well, it will be superfluous to drive us mad. A candid observer would certainly declare that we were so already for embarking on so wild an experiment. I confess that I never imagined that the effect would be so sudden. Holmes dashed into the cottage. He reappeared with the burning lamp at full arm's length and threw it into a bank of brambles. We must give the room a little time to clear. Uh, there's certainly no longer a shadow of doubt how these tragedies were engineered. But the cause remains as obscure as ever. Yes, all the evidence pointed in the first tragedy to Mortimer Tregenis. Yes. There is the background of the family quarrel. We have only his word for the idea of someone moving in the garden. And if he did not throw the substance on the fire at the moment of leaving the room, who did do so? Then his own death was suicide. Well, it is on the face of it a not impossible supposition. Hmm. Fortunately, there is one man in England who knows all about it. Ah, and he's a little before his time. Hmm? Dr. Sterndale, over here. Hmm? We have been conducting a chemical experiment indoors, which has left the room unfit to receive a visitor. You sent for me, Mr. Holmes, and I have come. Though I really do not know why I should obey your summons. Since the matters which we have all to discuss affect you in a very intimate fashion, it is as well that we should talk where there can be no eavesdropping. I am at a loss to know, sir, what you can have to speak about that affects me in such a way. The killing of Mortimer Tregenis. For a moment I wished that I were armed. Sterndale's fierce face turned red, and he sprang forward with clenched fists towards Holmes. Then... With a violent effort, he stopped. I have lived so long among savages and beyond the law that I have got into the way of being a law unto myself. You do well not to forget it, Mr. Holmes, for I have no desire to do you an injury. Nor have I any desire to do you an injury, Dr. Sterndale, for which the clearest proof is that, knowing what I know, I have sent for you and not for the police. Is this bluff on your part? The bluff is all upon your side. Let me tell you some of the facts upon which my conclusions are based. On your return from Plymouth, you came here to ask me whom I suspected. I refused to answer you. You then went to the vicarage, waited outside for some time, and finally returned to your own cottage. How do you know that? I followed you. I saw no one. That is what you may expect to see when I followed. <laughs> In the morning, you filled your pocket with the red gravel beside your gate and returned to the vicarage. Once there, you used some of the gravel to throw at the window of Tregenis and rouse him. Some of it remains on the sill. I believe you are the devil himself. Once he was dressed and in the sitting room, you entered by the window. There was a short interview, then you went back through the window, closed it, and waited until Tregenis was dead. Then you withdrew. Now, Dr. Sturdale, how do you justify such actions? Our visitor's face had turned ashen grey as he listened. He sat for some time, 
and then, with an impulsive gesture, threw a photograph on the ground between us. That is why. It was a picture of Brenda Tregenis. For years I have loved her, and she me. But I could not marry her, for I have a wife who has left me, and yet whom, by the deplorable laws of England, I cannot divorce. For years, Brenda and I waited for this. The vicar was in your confidence. That is why he telegraphed to you and you returned at once. Scarcely listening, Dr. Sterndale drew a package with a red poison label on it from his pocket and passed it to me. I understand you are a doctor, sir. Yes. Have you ever heard of that preparation? Devil's footroot. No, I've never heard of it. Oh, it is no reflection on your professional knowledge, for it has not yet found its way into the literature of toxicology. It is an ordeal poison used in West Africa by medicine men and kept as a secret among them. How did it come into the possession of Mortimer Tregenis? I had met him with all the others after the family quarrel was supposed to be made up. I little realized what a sly, scheming man he was. Good afternoon, Dr. Sterndale. I was just passing and thought... One day, a couple of weeks ago, he came down to my cottage, and I showed him some of my African curiosities. Including this poison? Yes. He plied me with questions about it. And you say it works within minutes? Within seconds, in most cases. I have heard of instances when a native... I little dreamed he had a personal reason for asking. How he took it, I cannot say for I never left the room. But as soon as I heard what had happened, I knew Mortimer Tregenis was the murderer, driving his family insane so that he'd become the sole guardian of the family property. He must have been insane himself. My soul cried out for revenge. I said just now I have come to be a lord myself, so I made him share the fate he'd inflicted on others. There is my story, Mr. Holmes. I am in your hands. What were your plans? To bury myself in Central Africa. My work there is but half finished. Dr. Sterndale, go and do the other half. I, at least, am not prepared to prevent you. Thank you, sir. Dr. Sterndale bowed gravely and walked slowly away. This is not a case in which we are called upon to interfere. Well, your investigation has been independent. Your action can be also. Precisely. You know, Watson, I have never loved. But if I did, and the woman I loved had met such an end, I might even act as our lawless lion hunter has done. Who knows? Who knows? In The Devil's Foot by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Roy Marsden played Sherlock Holmes, John Moffat, Dr. Watson, Peter Tottenham, the Reverend Round Hay, Sean Barrett, Mortimer Tregenis, and Jack May, Dr. Leon Sterndale. The music was written by Joss Sanglier and played by Joss Sanglier and Elizabeth Fellows. The Devil's Foot was dramatized by Grant Eustace and directed by Michael Bartlett for Daedalus Productions. <laughs>